Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. So yeah, let's open up to Mark chapter 10. We'll continue our study or begin our study at verse 17. So let us pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to teach your word. So I pray once again, Lord, that you give us receptive hearts to receive your word and the work you desire to do in us and through us. I pray for the gift of teaching. And Lord, my heart's desire is to decrease and that you may increase May you be glorified this night, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 17 through 31. And the title of tonight's lesson is, What's Holding You Back? What's Holding You Back? Now, at this point of the study in Mark 10, uh, Jesus had traveled to the southern area of Israel to the region of Judea. And Jesus previously had taught on marriage and he also taught on divorce. And then he talked about the type of faith that's necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus talked about a childlike faith. And now in tonight's study, we're going to see an encounter Jesus had with the man who has something that is holding him back from a relationship with God. And of course, it's holding him back from eternal life with God. And many of us, as we look at this interaction Jesus has with this young man, we'll find that we identify with this man, either based on our past or for some of us, our present. There's going to be some commonality there. And so we want to turn our attention right now to verse 17, again in Mark chapter 10. And it says, now as he, speaking of Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Matthew nineteen sixteen adds the following details. The young man said, what good things shall I do, of course, to inherit eternal life? And so picking up back in Mark 10, verse 18, Jesus said to this man, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. Now, according to Luke chapter 18, verse 18, we see that this person who came running up to Jesus is a ruler. And Matthew 19, verse 20 tells us that he's a young man. And so when we put that together, now you understand how they came up with this title of calling this person a rich young ruler. As we look at, of course, all of those synoptic gospels, 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, of course, in our study so far, we see that this young man asked an important question. He asked, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And some people today are, are asking this question. They're still asking this question today. And if they're not asking that question, they may think that salvation is based on our performance or our works. And tonight we're going to get to that answer of how can one inherit eternal life. We'll get there. But I just wanted us to, to settle here and just think about this question that this, this rich young ruler asked. What shall I do? Or what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, if you notice, Jesus didn't answer that question right away. In fact, Jesus focused on the fact that the young man called him good. He called him good teacher. But this young man needed to know what the word good implied. And so Jesus was going to put him to the test. And what Jesus said here in, in verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. We come to the understanding that only God is good inherently. It is a part of God's nature. He is a good God. It's just a part of who he is. We cannot separate that from God. He is good. And he also says that there's no one else who's good. No one else who is inherently good. And we'll get into that in greater detail later as well. But there are a couple of ways we can take what Jesus said. When he said there is, there is no one good but one. And that's God couple of ways we can take it. Number one, we can take it that Jesus is saying that he himself is not good. Well, we know that's false because of the other scriptures. But another way we can take this, that we can take Jesus's statement is that he himself is God. He didn't come out just clearly and, and say that, you know, just straight out to this young man that I'm God. But there are a couple of ways you can take that. But it's possible here that Jesus was nudging the young man toward a greater revelation of who he is. You see, you can't just throw out any word. You have to be careful of what you say. So if you call someone good, do you understand what that means? That, look, there's no one good but God. In verse 19 he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness or lie about someone. Do not defraud, which means cheat other people. Don't cheat people. Then honor your father and your mother. And before Jesus gets there to that place that we read in Mark ten nineteen. Back in Matthew 19, verse 17, Jesus says, 
But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Uh, we have some, some things to clarify tonight. And then skipping ahead to Matthew uh, 19, verse 19, uh, after Jesus says, honor your father and mother, he adds, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So once again, we're weaving these different gospel accounts together. And so in Mark, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But again, Matthew does. Matthew 19 has that information. And it's good for us to include that in tonight's study because it's important to what we're going to talk about. And then back in, in Mark 10, verse 20, it says, And he answered and said to him, the young Ruler said to Jesus, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. I I, I didn't commit adultery. I I didn't murder. I didn't steal. I I didn't lie on people or lie about people. I didn't cheat anyone. I honored my father and my mother. I've kept all of these things from my youth. And then Matthew 19, it includes the fact that this young man asked a question, and the question he asked in, in Matthew nineteen twenty is, what do I still lack? What, what am I still missing? Well, first, I want to point out that all of these commandments that Jesus pointed out to this rich young ruler have to do with the person's relationship with other people. They all have to do with our relationship with others. And something else you may not have noticed or recognized, that here Jesus says, do not defraud or cheat anyone. But if you look at the commandments in in Exodus chapter 20, the scripture says, you shall not covet. And so it would seem that Jesus replaced, you shall not covet with Do not defraud or cheat anyone. And he probably did that because cheating people out of what belongs to them is a revelation or manifestation of coveting. And coveting, of course, is desiring something that someone else has in the wrong way. And so cheating people out of what they have, once again, is a manifestation of having a a covetous heart. And so this young man said, look, I've done all these things since I was a youth. And so at this point, he must have felt proud of himself. But I also like the fact that Jesus told him to love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm so glad that was included in Matthew chapter 19. Because it is true that if we love our neighbor, we'll fulfill the law. And if you turn over to Romans chapter 13, you'll see what we mean. Because in Romans 13, verse 8, we're going to go to verse 10. It says the following. It says to owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, 
are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so that's why I said that it's true that if we love our neighbor, we'll fulfill the law. But here's the thing. It doesn't mean that we work our way to that point, that we create this love in ourselves and start doing these good things to our fellow man on our own. No, it doesn't mean that. But I just want to point out that this change and this ability to love our neighbor as ourselves is an ability given to us by the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit does not come in our lives. He does not enter into us until we're saved, until we repent of our sins and turn to Jesus. And then we will be born again, born from above by the Holy Spirit. We'll be given spiritual life. We'll receive, in other words, God's life, which is eternal Life. It only comes from God and, and only a person who's born again and is, and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit has this ability to, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because if we love our neighbors, then again, we won't do our neighbors any harm, but it takes a special kind of love. It takes the God love within us. It takes agape love. That sacrificial, unselfish love, unconditional love, that Christ-like love. And so it's not saying you start here and then do, but no, we get saved first. And then we're able to do this. But of course, Jesus is going through, this, through these steps to, to lead this young man to a place. He wants to show this young man something. See, if a person could perfectly keep the law, including in regard to the matters of the heart, that means not sin in any way or not even being born in sin. If a person had that ability or was in that state, then yes, they could make it to heaven, was never born in sin, never committed sin, then yeah, they would go to heaven. The truth is, we run into a few problems as humans because the Bible and Jesus are clear that there is no one good but God. And so that's one problem we run into. And so right there, since we're born in sin, there's no human who's inherently good. Then that disqualifies us from earning our way into heaven. Because even if we kept most of the law, but, but missed in half of the law, we're disqualified because God requires perfection. And so that's one of the few problems we run into when, and people forget, and maybe this young man, and I'm sure this rich young ruler didn't realize that, that all of these commandments weren't just talking about outward things, but also the sins of the heart. See, I could imagine he was thinking that, oh, I didn't physically commit adultery, so I'm good. But maybe that young man lusted in his heart. See, do not cheat. He thought he was good. So it's not about refraining from 
committing these sins outwardly. But again, it's the sins of the heart. There's also a problem with us trying to keep the law to earn salvation. Another problem. And that problem, of course, is our flesh, our sin nature. You see, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect. It came from God, a perfect God. The law is holy. It came from a holy God. But the law has no power to change us. It has no power to give us new life, to help us to be born again. And so the problem is not the law, it's our sin nature. And so that's another problem that we run into of trying to earn our way into heaven. Just not going to happen that way in our own efforts. Another problem that people run into is that the purpose of the law is not designed as a mean, means for people to get to heaven. It's not, that's not the method. And to be specific, the law, first of all, points out our sin. It helps us to be aware that we are sinners. But another thing that it does is it helps us to see our need for a Savior. It points us to Jesus. There's a scripture in Galatians 3, uh, 24, if you want to write it down, that says that the law was our tutor. It, it brought us to Christ. And so a, a tutor at that time in that, in that culture, you know, it was usually a, a trusted a slave. And they would oversee the young man's life, his morals and so forth, until he arrived at manhood. And that was what the law was like. It was like this tutor, this guardian, so to speak, over us, just helping us just there until we arrived at Christ. And so, again, not only does it point out our sin, but it helps us to see our need for Jesus. It points us to Christ. We need some help, and here he is, Jesus, the Christ. And so the purpose of the law itself is a problem for anyone who wants to, work, to earn their way into heaven. And so this rich young ruler again told Jesus, I kept all these. What do I still lack? What am I missing? And you'll notice in the study tonight that Jesus doesn't argue with him. He doesn't say, oh, you, maybe you missed it or maybe you didn't do that sin outwardly, but in your heart you sin. Oh, oh, Jesus doesn't contradict what he says, doesn't argue with the young man. And so what Jesus is doing, he, he's, he's just working his way to exposing what the real issue is in this young man's life. And so in verse 21 in Mark 10, Jesus looking at him, and I love this, it says Jesus loved him. Now, Jesus didn't ridicule him. Jesus didn't put him down. He, he looked at him and he loved him. And he, and he said to this rich young ruler, there's one thing that you lack. One thing, young man, that 
you are missing. He said, go your way and sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. This is a call to discipleship. Following Jesus, copying Jesus, where Jesus goes, he goes. Ready to die for Jesus' namesake because you represent him, because you are his follower. So Jesus offered that to him. But this young man in verse 22 was sad at what Jesus said. He was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. In other words, this young man was rich. And so here we see that Jesus uncovered this rich young ruler's issue. You see, his issue was that his riches was his God. And there is a commandment, of course, that he had broken. Remember, Jesus only focused on the commandments that dealt with mankind's relationship with other humans. He only pointed those out. But now we see that the issue has to do with his relationship with God. You see, riches was his God. And so, in essence, this young man was breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me or besides me. Exodus 20, verse 3. So Jesus here is uncovering this issue. Your possessions. That, that's your God. Give this stuff away to the poor and pick up your cross. Take up the cross. Die daily. Die to yourself daily and even be prepared to die for me physically, literally. Follow me. Follow my ways. Follow my teachings. He didn't take him up on that offer. And like this young man, many acknowledged Jesus as a good teacher. He acknowledged him as a good teacher, as a good rabbi. And many people recognized Jesus as a good man, as a prophet, as a good teacher. But then they go away upset and sad. Because of something that he said that they don't agree with. And so, for example, you have people in this world who, who like when Jesus says, judge not. Because it, they think it benefits them. Oh, Jesus says, judge not. And they use that as an excuse to say, leave me alone in my sin. But that's not what Jesus was talking about when he said, judge not. Because if they read the Bible, there's, other, there's another scripture that says judge righteous judgment. Don't judge according to appearance. Don't judge according to what it looks like. Somebody comes out of a, of a, out of a store at the gas station or whatever, and they got a brown paper bag. Oh, don't judge and say, oh, they're an alcoholic because it could be medicine. It could be donuts. And you telling the whole church, oh, I saw Pastor Durrell the brown paper bag coming out of the liquor store, not knowing it was donuts. 
Don't judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Judge with humility. Judge based on the word of God. Judge not, not looking down on people, not condemning. Don't judge hypocritically. Judge righteous judgment, having all the information, and then you make your judgment. You make your decision. We do it all the time. We, we use discernment all the time. And if you don't believe me, for those of us who have children, there are certain children, especially when they become teenagers, especially if those other children are not raised in the word and you know that those children are using alcohol or into gangs and other stuff they shouldn't be involved in. There, there's some children you wouldn't allow your children to hang with. That's because you use some type of judgment or discernment to say, you know what, we, we, we love them, but, you know, it's not a good idea to hang with them. That's using discernment. It's using judgment. But the, but the judging that Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 7 that the world likes to use, that they would make their favorite scripture, that was talking about condemning and judging in the wrong way, judging hypocritically, looking down their noses on other people. And if you want to see what that looks like, look at what the Pharisees were doing. That's why Jesus was so tough on these religious leaders. You see, people like when when Jesus says that, oh, judge not. But then they don't want to hear when we share what Jesus said and said, you know, that person that you call a good teacher You know, he said he's the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, no, he couldn't possibly be the only way. You guys are so narrow. But Jesus said it. But you just called him a good prophet, a good man, a good teacher a while ago. But when I shared this information with you that you don't like or you don't agree with, then you do like this rich young ruler and you walk away sad and disappointed and throwing a fit. So there's some people in this world today who are doing these things just like what this young man was doing you know I I don't like what you just told me you know I like my possessions verse 23 it says then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God And the disciples were astonished. They were amazed at what Jesus said. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. So we have to ask the question, why were the disciples so disappointed or or not disappointed, but astonished or amazed at hearing what Jesus said about a person who has riches, that's hard for them to enter into the kingdom of God? Why was that so uh, uh, astonishing to them? And it's because at that time, many people had the thought that if someone was rich, it was, a, it was a sign that they were blessed by God and that they had God's favor. Therefore, these people, no doubt, we're going to be in the kingdom of God. They're on good terms with God. They, 
They have all these possessions. They're rich. And so no wonder they were astonished at the saying. But, but guess what? Many people today are tripped up with that concept as well. And I wonder if that's the possible reason people take the word of celebrities when these famous people, these people who are so-called rich and famous, when, when they give their two cents about their thoughts about God and their thoughts about morality. I wonder if that's the reason why people take their word as the gospel truth. Because some people may think, well, they're successful. They have a lot of money. They must be blessed by God. So maybe what they're saying is true. And so some people today are falling into that same trap that the disciples did. And some people in that day fell into that same trap. That, oh, they're rich, they're good with God. But Jesus says something interesting. In verse 25, he says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye or hole of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there are some Bible scholars who have taught that the eye of the needle is a reference to the low, narrow entrance to houses in those ancient times. Or maybe a reference to a narrow gateway for pedestrians. And so some of these Bible scholars, and I'm not saying they're wrong, but they tell of camels having to have their uh, loads removed so they can kneel down and crawl through these narrow spaces. And that sounds good. So again, I'm not saying that's wrong, but another view of what this eye of a needle can refer to is that it, it, it could refer to a literal needle and a literal camel. And what we see here is the literal needle and the literal camel are being used in what's called a hyperbole. And a hyperbole is a figure of speech which, or uh, an exaggerated statement that is not to be taken literally. And so literal camel, literal needle in a statement. And in that statement, you don't take it literally, of course. And one, one source says that there is believed to be here a reference to a proverbial form of expression that was common in Jewish schools. When one desired to express the idea of great difficulty or of impossibility. And that view makes sense because Jesus says something similar to that in Matthew 7, 3. He used another hyperbole, another exaggerated statement about some literal items. Because in Matthew 7, 3, he said, and why do you look at the speck or splinter in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank or this big log or big two by four in your own eye? So when that hyperbole is kind of comical, but it's not to be taken literally because Jesus's point in that hyperbole in Matthew 7, 3 is that, look, you're judging someone else who about the same sin that you're doing. You're judging hypocritically. And so he said, you have a log in your eye trying to tell somebody else with a splinter what to do. 
And so he used hyperbole there. And so I believe I do lean towards this camel going through the eye of a needle. I lean towards that being hyperbole as well. And in this illustration of the camel and the eye of a needle, what we see here is a large animal trying to fit into something very small. In other words, it is a difficulty. It is pretty much an impossibility, at least for man. And so I believe that the main purpose of this illustration with this camel and the eye of the needle is to show how difficult it is for someone who trusts in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It's as simple as that. It's difficult. That's how difficult it is. It's easier for a camel to go through a little eye of a needle than for a man who makes riches his God to enter into heaven. Simple as that. In verse 26, it says, And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? If these rich people who I thought were blessed by God and had an end with God, if they're not saved, who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. You see, salvation is impossible for any human And I won't add just the people who trust in riches, but for any human, salvation is impossible to attain on our own. That's because, number one, for some people, their ideas are more valuable than what God has to say in his word. For some people, uh, their lifestyle, their sinful lifestyle is more valuable than what God has to say in his word. And so that's one reason that salvation is impossible for some humans because what they think and how they're living is more valuable. Something that they don't want to give up like this rich young ruler didn't want to give up his possessions to the poor. Then another reason is that the humans, all of us as humans, we don't have the credit. We just don't have the credit to enter into heaven. In our own strength, in our own ability. And, and this is why God himself had to become a man. Or why, he, why couldn't God become an ant and save us? Well, it's because man sinned. Man was made in the image of God. Man sinned. And guess what? Sin had to be dealt with. And, and since man sinned, man had to pay the price. But check this out. God wanted a way for man, for the penalty of sin to be paid because he's a holy God. So sin has to be dealt with. It can't be brushed under the rug with a holy God. He can't give it a pass because he's a holy God. He's a righteous judge. So sin had to be dealt with. Man had to pay the price because man sinned. But he also wanted to give man an opportunity to live. So how could he reconcile that? That sin has to be dealt with, but then I want to give man a chance to live. But then you still have the problem that, okay, if man is going to live and if sin is going to be paid for, there has to be a perfect sacrifice. These animals are just not going to do it. The animals were just an IOU. And so that perfect sacrifice 
could only be a perfect man. Man lost his place in the garden. Man lost his relationship with God. So man had to pay the price. And so you need a perfect man who can truly pay for the penalty of sin. But there's another problem. There is no perfect man who can be that perfect sacrifice. But wait a minute. God is perfect. So what has to happen now is that a perfect God has to become a man and live as a perfect human. And so this is where we read in John chapter 1 verse 14 that the word became flesh. And the word, of course, being Jesus, the word, of course, being God. Now you have a perfect God who became a perfect man who can now become the perfect sacrifice and pay the penalty for man to stand in our place and to give us an opportunity to live. And that's what God the Son did for us. God the Son being Jesus Christ. And that's where it says, and, and this is where we have the understanding now of 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, for he made him who knew no sin. The, Jesus didn't know any sin, never sinned at all. But he made him to be sin for us. He made him to be our sin offering as if he were the guilty one. So that what? So that we could be made the righteousness of God. In who? In Christ. In him. Now we, have a, now we have a right standing with God because of Jesus, because he paid the penalty. And, and so he made all mankind savable. But all, not all mankind is going to be saved. Why? Because some people, like this rich young ruler, turn away from the offer of salvation. And so through Jesus, yes, this salvation This eternal life is possible, and it is a gift, a gift to be received by faith. Romans 6.23, the second half of it, it says the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift of God. That's what salvation is. Then Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, you're familiar with these verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, by God's unmerited favor. Not something we've earned. We've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God. We just saw that in Romans 6, 23. Salvation is not of works. So rich young ruler, all that stuff you said you did, it doesn't matter. There is only one good and that is God. So it's not of works lest anyone should boast. And then Peter in verse 28 in Mark 10 began to say to Jesus, see, we have left all and followed you. We left all and followed you. And then just to get filled in, in in Matthew 19, verse 28, it says, so Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, in the renewal, speaking of the millennial kingdom, when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so back in Mark 10, verse 29, it says, So Jesus answered and said, Surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold. Or a hundred times more. Now in this time. 
houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. You're going to get persecutions too. Thank God for that gift. And in the age to come, you'll get eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And so we can look back at this young man and we can clearly see what was holding this young man back from entering heaven, from inheriting eternal life with God. We see what held him back. Of course, his riches, that was his God. And what Jesus told the young ruler to give up may not be the same issue for us. So don't take what Jesus told that young ruler and apply it to us. That was his problem. His problem was his possessions. But my question for you tonight, for all of us tonight, is what's holding us back? What's holding us back from having or inheriting eternal life or entering into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus? Are we just like this rich young ruler? Is it our possessions that's holding us back? Notice that even with the possessions that rich young rulers were, he was still empty. Because if he were not empty, he would not have come running to Jesus, kneeling before him, asking him what did he need to do to inherit eternal life. So this goes to tell us that possessions are not everything. That we still have a space or empty spot within us that only God can fill. So is it our possessions that's holding us back from a relationship with him? If there's anyone in here or viewing who's not saved, or maybe it's worldly success. For other people, it's relationships. Well, I don't want to give my life to God because now my friends won't want to hang with me. My girlfriend or boyfriend, they won't want to hang with me anymore. Or maybe there's some things you're thinking that you want to experience first. Before you become a Christian, oh, I want to, I've always wanted to do this. I want to do this first and then get saved. But tomorrow, of course, is not promised. So is that what was holding you back? Is that what holding some people back? And even then, after hearing about the offer of salvation and these eternal blessings, these, these people, many people who are unbelievers right now, They still feel that their success and their worldly possessions are more important than the eternal riches and blessings that come from God. They heard the truth. They weighed them out and they still choose their possessions. They still choose their worldly success. They still choose their relationships over God and all of the eternal blessings that come from being in fellowship and relationship with him. But then there are many of us who are going to heaven. There's many of us who are saved at this point. And we're still being held back. Oh, yes, we're in a relationship with God. But that fellowship isn't as strong as it could be. So what's holding you back from a deeper fellowship with God? Oh, yes, you're saved. You're you're going to heaven. But you're still not living the victorious life in the spirit. So what is that that's holding you back, brother or sister in Christ? Is it sin? Is it a relationship for you as well? Or maybe it's fear. Fear what's coming up ahead. Yes, we're going to be persecuted. But is that fear of that holding you back 
from a deeper, deeper fellowship with him, from living that victorious life in the spirit. As the worship team comes up to the stage. And here's the question for anyone who doesn't believe at this time. And here's the question for any believer at this time who's being held back by something. And only you and God know what that is. The question is, are you willing to let go of what's impeding your salvation or your progress as far as living a victorious life in the spirit? Are you willing to let it go? Because if you read the scriptures, you understand that God will not tolerate anything that gets in the way of him being at the head of our lives. He will not tolerate any other God in our lives. See, some of us think that God is being a meanie, that Jesus was being a meanie by telling this man to let go of his possessions, to give it to the poor. But what, what was Jesus really trying to do and what is God really trying to do in our lives? By putting it on our hearts and by telling us and telling that rich young ruler to, to give up what's holding him back. What is, what is God really telling us? What is he trying to do? What he's really trying to do is to help us to get rid of what's preventing us from being better. He wants to give us something better. He wants us to be open to something that's eternal, to something that moth is not going to destroy, to to something that rust won't destroy, to something that thieves can't steal. And so he wants us to get rid of what's holding us back. So he can give us something much better. Oh yes, many of us have lost family or have left houses or whatever the case may be. Even what these disciples did. They left their career, their fishing career. Some of them did. But guess what? They gained a way to follow. People want to know what is the way. Well, they found a way in Christ Jesus. Oh, they left many family members and so have many of you, but you gain many spiritual family members. And I would venture to say that you're closer, many of you are closer to many of your brothers and sisters in Christ than you are to your blood relatives. And I believe that's true for for many of us. And so you may have some broken relationships with some blood family members. And it's not because of you not trying to be peaceful, but it's because you are a representative of Christ and they don't like you anymore. They don't want to invite you to the family functions anymore. But guess what? Jesus said, okay, you gave that up. You left that, but you gained a bunch of family members. Oh, you left that land, but guess what? You'll gain many other lands. And guess what? You'll also gain, and you can smile on this, you gain persecutions. And according to Jesus, that's a blessing. Because in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, he said, Blessed are you when they revile you, when they persecute you, and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. He said, Blessed are you. Oh, we're blessed when we're persecuted. It doesn't feel good, but Jesus said we're blessed. So guess what? We're blessed when we're persecuted. He said, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. But guess what? They persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you are persecuted for Jesus' sake, that means you're on the right side. So, yes, you're blessed. Or they may take away your stuff. They may take away this building. They may take away our very lives. 
but yes, we're still blessed. Because even if they take our lives physically, all that did was help us to enter into eternity. When they threaten to take our lives, all they're threatening us with is, hey, I'm going to send you to heaven fast. That's the threat they're giving us when they threaten us with death. So blessed are you. Oh, we may give up treasures on earth, but guess what? We gain treasures in heaven. You see that when when God says to give up this, give up this stuff that's holding you back, he wants to replace it with something better, something that lasts, something eternal. He wants to replace it with eternal life that comes from God. And guess what? When you give up what's holding you back, that old God, that little G God that's holding you back, you replace it with Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have all you need. Because in him is every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing that we have in heavenly places is because of Christ Jesus. And so we trade that stuff in for Jesus. And as you can see here, the stuff that we give up is not worth more than what God wants to give us. And from there, you can take this point. That God will not be outdone. In other words, you cannot outgive God. But God, I gave this up. But yeah, I gave you eternal life. But God, I, I gave up that relationship. But I gave you my only begotten son. God will not be outgiven. Will not be outdone. So if there's anything you take from the study tonight is that there is nothing that's worth more than God and your relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for uh, sending us and giving us that the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ, your only begotten son. Thank you for the gift of salvation in Christ. And Father, I pray for every saint in this building, every saint online, every saint who will be listening to this in the future or viewing this service in the future, that if there's anything that's holding us back, Lord, from a deeper walk with you, from a more victorious life in the spirit, I pray for your strength to help us to surrender, to help us to lay those things aside. And may you bless my brothers and sisters tonight, Lord. May you watch over them as they leave this place, head back home. And may you use them in a mighty way this week. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. So we just want to thank you all for coming out tonight. And if you have, pray- if you have any needs, and if you need prayer, We'll be here ready and willing to pray with you. God bless you, and we love you. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.